Well, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 in your Bible, Paul wrote some letters, and in the New Testament, you'll find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So come with me to Colossians 3. We'll be there in a second. Let me just say that I can speak on this topic with authority. First, because I am an imperfect spouse. Married for over 16 years now, and oh, along the way, Jen has discovered a few things that annoy her. I'm just going to bring up one because we don't have a lot of time. So one of those is my driving. Uh, I, <clears throat> I have some issues. I, apparently I've been told I have two modes, two speeds of driving. It's like Michael Andretti race car or old man. And I cannot seem to find the happy medium that, every, that is normal. Uh, and usually when I'm driving in the old man style, it's because I'm trying not to drive aggressively. So I have an uncanny ability to hit every single pothole Every single one. Even when I try to miss them, I hit them. And my kryptonite is parking lots. I cannot get out of parking lots. I get trapped in parking lots. I go the wrong way. My wife laughs about it half the time. Half the time she's like, really? Come on. And my driving is just the tip of the iceberg. Jen is married to a very flawed, very imperfect spouse. But just to be fair, I'm an expert as well because I am married to an imperfect spouse. And this is the point where everyone in this room is like, Mark, you better be really careful. You are on really thin ice right now. And I, I know, I feel it, like I'm going to fall right through here. It's very, very thin. In fact, after this, um, after this church service, in a little bit, Jen and I are going to get in the car and go to a couple's retreat for a couple of days. So this sermon could impact our time together. So Lord, help me. But seriously, I can remember the exact moment that I knew I was marrying an imperfect person. And it goes back to moving Jen out of her apartment. Uh, Before we got married, I was there with her family, helping her get everything out. One of my jobs was to remove the trash. You know, when you're moving and you have all that trash and you're carrying the trash bags out, that was one of my jobs. And I distinctly remember carrying trash bags down this flight of stairs, holes ripping through the garbage can uh, or the garbage bag, and spaghetti falling out and plopping down the steps, and me starting to get a little bit angry. Jen told me it was the first time she ever saw me get angry. And it was the first time that I knew that I was marrying somebody. I mean, she maximized those trash bags, let me tell you, but maybe a little too much. We are all imperfect people. But imperfect is not a strong enough word for it. We are all sinful people. And marriage at its core is really two sinners in covenant together. And this is what makes it so hard. It's not just me trying to figure out how to love an imperfect spouse. It's me as an imperfect spouse trying to figure out how to love an imperfect spouse. This is further complicated by the fact that marriage is the most intimate human relationship on the planet. In the video, we heard Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked And we're not ashamed. There is no other relationship like marriage. The closeness and the intimacy. So when you're that close to somebody, you get to see all their flaws, all their mistakes. Your sin spills over into them, into their life. And their sin spills over into you. And it's difficult. I just mentioned the challenge that we have is I'm an imperfect spouse trying to love an imperfect spouse. So this morning, we are going to focus on the first part of that equation because there is nothing you can do to change your imperfect spouse. 
And some of you are like, I really thought the sermon was going to be helpful because I was going to come and figure out how to deal with my messed up spouse. <laughs> well, we can do nothing to change them other than pray, and we should pray. We should pray a lot for the, for the spouse that we have. But if we would start to address this in our hearts, and our spouse would start to address this in their hearts, of course, we would find healing. We would find some kind of progress. And, and any progress I've ever seen in marriages has been through this humble, inward looking at itself. So, let's look at this text in Colossians chapter 3, a text that helps us deal with our sin that affects relationships, all right? And I know through this sermon, you're going to be tempted to think about your spouse and how you hope that they hear this, okay? God wants to do a mighty work in your spouse, but he also wants to do a mighty work in you, no matter how glaring the flaws are in your spouse. So read with me Colossians 3, we're just going to read verse 5, and then we're going to read verses 12 through 19. So look with me here, Colossians 3, verse 5, God's word says this, put to death therefore, this is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he's instructing them how to have uh, proper uh, relationships, okay? He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And skip with me to verse 12. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then verse 18 and 19, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now we know verse 18 and 19 is about marriage. It's not too complicated. It says wives and it says husbands in verse 19. But if we isolate these two verses from the rest of the chapter, we're not going to know how to actually do this. How do we put it into practice? How does a wife submit to her husband? How does a husband love his wife and be gentle with her? Especially when their spouse is showing their sinfulness. Colossians 3 lists some sins that we know are destructive to relationships. So look with me, verse 5, it talks about sexual immorality and impurity. Verse 8 and verse 9, we didn't read these, but you look at them later. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And these are all injurious sins. These will dismantle a marriage. So certainly if your marriage is being torpedoed, by these kind of things, by immorality, deceit, or slander, these things have to be dealt with immediately. You, you have to address them. You will not have a godly marriage until you admit them, until you repent from them, until you, you move on in godliness. And I just want to say, and I think this is important to say, that if there is abuse in your relationship, if there's abuse in your marriage, whether you are the abused or the abuser, you need to talk to somebody, you need to get some help, because God takes abuse very seriously, and we should as well. 
But not all sin that plagues marriage is so obvious. In fact, before a marriage ever gets nuclear, it starts with these desires that we have inside of us that churn, right? And they're, they're down there. No one can see them. And I believe this contributes to the slow degradation of marriage. Most times, it's the little things that build over the years. It's the desires that I have that are not fulfilled. And so I want to look at verse 5 this morning. We're going to spend a good amount of time there because verse 5 gets to the heart. Verse 5, one more time, says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The text says, put to death. And I want to focus on verse 5 specifically because the only way for us to put to death the sins in our life, whatever they are, you can look in the paragraph, verses 5 through 11, whatever those are, the only way to put them to death is to get below the surface, to get to the heart, to address the roots that are down there. This past year, we at our property had these green, ugly, prehistoric-looking beetles. I think they were May or June beetles or something. And they came into our area, and, and my wife and I were concerned because they, they destroyed gardens, and we had just planted a garden, and, they were, and they're ugly, and they're nasty, and the kids are like, get them, Daddy, deal with these things, right? So read a little bit about them. Um, how do you deal with this? How do you kill off these May beetles or June beetles or however you call them? You know, you can start stomping on each of them as you see them. You can start trying to address the actual bugs you see, and you'd get somewhere, I guess. But in researching and, and figuring it out, it, apparently they lay larvae under the grass, like in the soil, so that next year we have the same problem again. So I learned that you have to address it below the soil. You've got to put some fertilizer or some pesticide, that's what it's called, on the grass and deal with it below the surface. And it's, it's the, that way with sins in our life. We can try to stomp out those, those ugly sins, but unless we get below the surface where they're coming from, where the source is, we're not going to make any kind of progress. And so verse 8 says, put them all away, kill them. Or verse 9, put off. Colossians 3 is one of several put off, put on passages. You ever heard this before? There are texts that say put off something and put on something. Stop doing something and start doing something in its place. Verse 5 through 11, we're to put off all those things. Verse 12 through 17, put on. And so Paul's writing to this church in Colossae and he's instructed them how to have healthy, flourishing relationships in the church. And then this passage just transitions smoothly into verse 18 and 19. They're not disconnected. Indeed, part of the secret to a good Christian marriage is remembering two married believers are not just husband and wife. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are part of the family of God. We are Christians, the church in a microcosm. And so we must apply this whole chapter to our lives, to our marriage, if we're going to have any progress, any growth, any health. And by the way, even if your spouse is not a believer, you could apply these principles to your life and start to see changes within your own soul. It's very easy to think, well, if they would just get saved, if they would just trust in Christ, our problems would go away. Well, man, would that help? But there's still things in your heart that God wants to do. And if you're not married in here, I know that's a number of you, I want you to think about how could these principles apply to my other relationships, because they really can. All right? So for all the married couples, I think we need to look at this context and understand, okay, how do I obey 18 and 19? I need to understand what's going on here. 
Let me explain why I think that's the case. I believe it's almost impossible for a wife to take verse 18 and just by sheer willpower do it. Well, I'm just going to submit to my husband. It's fitting in the Lord. That might work a time or two, but you know, ladies, it's tough to just dig deep and submit when you don't want to, when you don't see that love. Likewise, for husbands, it's going to be really difficult to just love my wife despite her flaws and her weaknesses and by sheer willpower be gentle with her. Because there is something else going on in our hearts. we got to get down and see why am I struggling like I am. So, to love our imperfect spouse, let's consider what we should stop doing, what we should start doing. Stop serving the idol of marriage first. Stop serving the idol of marriage. And I'm going to spend most of my time here because you have to put off before you can put on. So what I would love for you to do as you go home is to apply this right away with saying, okay, what do I need to address? What do I need to put off? What do I need to put to death, as verse 5 says? Again, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There is an earthly way to live, and there is a heavenly way to live. I think we got that in that kingdom series, right? There's a way of the kingdom. There's a heavenly way to live, and there is an earthly way to live. Earthly living is the way the world lives, with no real thought, unaware, unmoved by spiritual realities, just what we can see. And in verse 1 of this chapter, if you glance back there, you see it says, since we have been raised with Christ, we should seek the things that are above and not the things that are on this earth. And this is true for every area of life. If you think about any area of life, there's an earthly way to approach it and there's a heavenly way. So marriage, what is the earthly view of marriage? What is the worldly version of marriage? I believe, and maybe you could finish the sentence, that most of the world believes marriage is about happiness. It's about happiness. I mean, why would you get married anyway unless as a single guy or girl you think, I'm going to be happier married than I am single? Some people choose to never be married. But there is this thought that we have that marriage will bring about happiness. And, it, and it's kind of ingrained in us from a very early age. The Disney fairy tales where the prince meets the princess and the woodland creatures are fawning all over them and they live happily ever after, right? They live happily ever after. And this kind of thinking is pervasive in our society, but it's a fundamentally flawed way to approach marriage. Because when our spouse's imperfections, when their sin, when their junk comes to the surface, it's kind of hard to have that ideal of marriage and the reality. There's, there's some disparity there. Well, what happened to the happiness? What do I do now, Disney? Come on. How many people complain about not being happy in their marriage? I'm honestly, I would be honestly very afraid to take a poll here, even here today. Right? We all deal at some point with this. How many people do you hear say, you know, I'm just not happy anymore? Often I would say, too, unfaithfulness begins here. Unfaithfulness in a marriage begins here because all of a sudden there's this other person that seems to care about my happiness, who seems to make me happy. And then lo and behold, even while breaking the marriage covenant, there's this perceived happiness. I want you to look at this very interesting phrase in verse 5. Verse 5, I, I'm going to camp here because I, I think it's super key for understanding how do I dispel this myth of happiness. It says this in verse 5, covetousness, which is idolatry. So covetousness equals idolatry. And Ephesians 5 
5 does the same thing. It says, he who is an idolater, I'm sorry, he who is a covetous person is an idolater. Covetousness. It's desiring what you don't have. In many cases, what you can never have, but you desire it. Most of the time, we think about this in relation to material possessions, money, stuff, that car that I really want, right? That's sometimes what we think about with covetousness. And, and to be sure, uh, Scripture often speaks about covetousness in fiscal terms or in possessions. And by the way, you want to talk about an acceptable sin in America, in the Western world, it would be greed, right? And there was a time when avarice was considered a deadly sin, but today um, it's kind of winked at. You know, the, the, the media supports it, exhibits uh, the, the beauty of greed, or so they would say, it's modeled. I think if, if you look at take, take a hard look at America, too, the threads of greed are even woven into our American dream. I mean, how, how often do people abuse that idea? Like, it's about my happiness. It's about my pursuit of happiness. So why is covetousness such an, a, a, a terrible sin? I mean, why would God call it idolatry? If you've read your Old Testament... You know idolatry is serious to God, right? It is a very serious offense to God Almighty. So why would he say your covetousness and my covetousness is idolatry? Well, covetousness is serious because it's the twisting and the perversion of something good. Are material possessions bad? No, they are good things. And I hope as an American you are grateful for the way that God has richly blessed you and how he's richly blessed me. But what happens is we take something that's good And now it's something that we must have. We make it ultimate. Money, possession, success. It it drives us. It it even controls us. And now what is good has become God. And when that happens, of course, it's idolatry. Here's what F.F. Bruce said. Covetousness is idolatry because it involves the setting of one's affections on earthly things, not on things above, and therefore the putting of some other object of desire in the place which God should occupy in a human's heart. We desire something so bad that our happiness is dependent on it. We derive our meaning, our ultimate meaning from it. And we do this with way more than money. It's not just a money thing. There's another type of covetousness which I believe is even more acceptable in the church, even in the world, than greed. The Apostle James writes about this. James 4 In the first three verses, James says this. I want you to read this verse with me, and I want you to think about this. Does this sound like my family at all? What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. That's covetousness. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And James is not talking about a covetousness here that is about money. No, he's talking about something else that are quarrels and are fights. They they spring from passions inside of us. Deep down inside of us, we have these desires. We want certain things, but we can't get them or we don't get them. And it makes us angry. And often we start to butt heads with people. Sound like anyone's home in here? I mean, what is the family but people living in the same space, you with your desires and what you want, me with my desires, and do you get your way, do I get my way, or do we find some kind of compromise? Too many times this power struggle leads to quarrels and to fights. And if we come back to our Colossians passage here, we see 
that there are five earthly things that we are to stop doing here. And they all come from these desires inside of us. So verse 5, again, look at it with me. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Notice that the first two are sexual in nature, at least the first two, if not the first three. And the earthly desires that Paul talks about in verse 5, especially the words passion and evil desire uh, and covetousness, they do not need to refer to sexual immorality. In fact, often they may not. But I don't want to just skip over the suspicious connection between covetousness and idolatry and sexual sin. In a sermon like this, I believe we need to address the monster that incessantly haunts our marriages. Is not sexual immorality covetousness? God has designed sex to be enjoyed within the marriage context, but most of us struggle to be content with that. If you're single in here, my guess is you desire some things that you don't right now have. And that's not wrong in and of itself. God has given those passions, those desires to you. But if unchecked, it leads to sexual sin, to something you want that you cannot have. Married people in here, many of us struggle to be content to not have our minds and our hearts going after things that are not ours. God wants us as husbands, he wants us as wives to be content with the imperfectly beautiful spouse he has given us. Part of loving our imperfect spouse is realizing this, that the world has propped up a synthetic version of pleasure that is not only unrealistic, it is idolatrous. Covetousness is the sin that fuels the porn industry, if you think about this. The individuals who produce videos and pictures, yeah, they're covetous for money, but they are banking on the fact that there are millions of people that are covetous when it comes to sex. So mark it down. Sexual covetousness is an idolatry that will destroy your marriage every single time. Now there's more than sexual sin addressed by Paul in verse 5. So let's talk about another kind of covetousness that I believe every single marriage experiences. So I've been married long enough, I've done enough marriage counseling to know that every husband desires certain things of his wife. And every wife desires some things of her husband and many times that doesn't happen right? Things we want them to do, things we want them to be. And how many times do they not do those things? And how many times are they not those things we want them to be? How many of our quarrels in a marriage come from frustrated desire? You can think of it that way, right? Frustrated desire. Here's where covetousness is so subtle and so insidious because it's not just the bad things, the obviously evil things. We desire good things, and those good things become such a desire of ours that when we don't get them, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get bitter, and it hurts our marriages. So let me give you a couple examples. Start with husbands. Husbands, how many husbands want their wife to respect them? 100% probably, right? <laughs> You're, I would guess every single husband wants their wife to respect them. Is it good and godly for a wife to respect her husband? Absolutely. The Bible talks about that. But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when the wife is not respectful to the husband? How badly, husband, do you desire that respect? It can make you get pretty angry. It can make you respond in ways that are certainly not Christ-like. And you can sit there and you can point the finger and say, she doesn't respect me. But there's something going on inside of my heart that I desire something to a much higher degree than I should. Or how about, you know, I want my wife to care for me. 
Some husbands have expectations of what kind of meal they want and what kind of house they want kept and all of that. And it's not necessarily bad, but what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when your wife does not live up to your expectations and your version of what she's supposed to be? Wives, how many wives want attention and romance from their husband? Doesn't every wife want that? I kind of learned the hard way when I first got married that you have to romance your wife when you're married too, not just when you're dating. I thought it was just a dating thing, you know, and Jen's saying, no, like I still want to date you. I still need to work on that. Okay, but you think about this. Isn't that a good thing for a wife to desire her husband to love her and to romance her and to give her attention? Absolutely. It's wired into us. God made us that way. But when we desire that thing so much and the husband does not deliver, which he often does not, now all of a sudden we have some real strife in the relationship. How about validation of beauty? What wife does not want to feel beautiful and have her husband tell her that she's beautiful? And husbands, we don't do a great job half the time of this. So wives, what do you do in those situations? Or here's one I've seen. It's a big one. Wives that want their husband to be the spiritual leader of the family. In a church like this where a lot of people are coming that want to honor God with their marriage, I've seen so many wives say, I just want my husband to be the leader that God wants him to be. I want to see him lead our family spiritually. Is that a good desire? Well, yeah, that's an awesome desire. What happens when the husband does not deliver? What happens when the husband is not moving as fast as he should in his progress of sanctification? You see, this is where it's very easy to look at the other person and say, if they just get their crap together, we'll, we'll have a good marriage. Yeah, but something in my heart is causing me to sometimes sour, sometimes have a view of my spouse that is not good. And these desires, when frustrated, I believe are at the root of so much marital unhappiness, which is why I'm trying to address that this morning, because so many times it's those little things, those desires that are unfulfilled, that are frustrated, that grow, and they become a beast. We so badly want our spouse to just do something, just just be something, and they're not. This desire, you know, I had already said this, it's not a sin, but somewhere along the way it gets twisted into a sin. I want you to see a passage from James 1 that helps us understand this. James 1 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this about this passage before, but desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. So all the things I just mentioned, and there are tons more, not necessarily a bad thing. But somewhere along the way, that desire conceives sin. I don't know when that happens, but I would dare say that is the point of covetousness. The point in which I desire something, but now I desire it so badly that it's becoming idolatrous. That's the point in which it's a sin. And then, of course, that sin hurts my marriage. So what is it that you want your spouse to do? The thing that you would say if they would just do this, we would have a better marriage. What is it that you want them to be? One of the most practical things you can do today is go home and spend some time examining your heart. Just pray and say, God, search my heart. See where the wickedness is in my heart. Like David prayed. Just say, God, reveal to me what I can do about my desires. And start by asking yourself this question or completing this sentence. I just wish I had a wife who fill in the blank. Or I just wish I had a husband who did this or was this. Now, you might be able to come up with 10 things. I don't know. 
But start with what is on your heart that you say, I just really want this, God. Here's the thing. Some of us have desired that so much, we've been praying for that. We've been praying that, but James actually tells us that if we are praying for our own selfish desires, God's not going to answer that prayer because it's idolatrous. God will not take part in our idolatry. So this whole time we've been praying, saying, God, would you just fix this about my husband? Would you fix this about my wife? And, And it's not happening. Now we're starting to get frustrated with God. When all the while we haven't realized that we desire this thing in an ungodly way. So as you answer that question and wherever covetousness identifies itself, wherever you see it in your life pop up, we repent of it. We repent of it as as idolatry. And so we have to topple the idols. That's step number one. You have to topple the idols. We need to put to death these things that are earthly, verse 5. Again, if we don't do this and we just try to slap on the traits that we read about in this text, we don't put off, we just put on, it's not going to deal with the source, the real issue. The earthly view of marriage, which, as we said, is about happiness, is really just a cover for selfishness. Can we just call it what it is? I enter into marriage hoping that my needs are met, that I am served. Yes, we made vows that were for the other person, but so many times... In marriage, it's a, it's a sham for my own selfishness. Christopher Ashe said this, and he said it well. Marriage and family can easily become a respectable form of selfishness. If we marry mainly to meet our own needs, then our marriages will be just that, good-looking masks for selfishness. That is a far cry from the biblical design for a marriage. Marriage is about holiness way more than it's about happiness. God's plan is different from Disney's, hard to believe. But listen, God wants us to become not just a prince and princess, but to become a king and a queen, to grow and to become like Christ. And you know what that's going to require? That's going to require strife and struggle and pain and repentance. And it's not always going to seem happy, but God's doing something in us through a marriage. So number one, we stop serving the idol of marriage. Number two, we start serving our spouse. Start serving our spouse. We're no longer living for this projection of what we want them to be. We're serving them as a person. Now remember Colossians 3 tells us to put off and in their place put on. So verse 12 through 14, look there with me. You'll see these qualities. Compassion. We're to put on compassion. That is this inner, deep down uh, feeling towards somebody. Like we feel for them. Some of us are better at this than others. Some people are very emotional and they wear their heart on their sleeve and others of us, often men, but sometimes women, we're not that compassionate. We struggle to empathize, to feel. And in a marriage, we have to say, God, give me compassion. Help me to really, truly care. And then it says kindness and humility. You can think of it this way. Kindness is a Christ-like attitude towards others. Humility is a Christ-like attitude towards myself. And of course, if we have a Christ-like, humble attitude towards ourselves, that was one of the scriptures that we read up on the screen, right? Christ's humility. We're going to have a kindness, a Christ-like attitude towards other people. And meekness, it says, and patience. And then look at verse 13. Verse 13, we have a progression in difficulty. It starts with saying, bear with one another. And Pastor Steve last week talked about this, right? To bear with one another in love. Sometimes that's all we can do is just bear with one another. Just put up with it in love and endure. 
But what we're reading here is we're not just supposed, to, just supposed to bear with one another. We're supposed to forgive one another and then forgive one another as Jesus has forgiven us. So there is a, a progress here. There is a sanctification that happens in our lives where we don't just put up with our spouse's annoying traits, but we start to forgive them truly from the heart and then to strive towards that goal of forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. Imagine the progress that would be made in your marriage, in the marriages of this church. If we would, number one, dig up those idols, get rid of those false ideas of marriage that we have, that earthly version of marriage that seems to be more selfish than it is godly. And in their place, we start to say, God, every day we say, God, show me how practically to have compassion. Show me how to be kind, to be gentle, to be meek, and to be patient. Show me how to forgive, God, because I don't know how to forgive. Verse 14, look at this with me. Key here, it says, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Some of you might know the analogy that Paul is using. Most likely he's instructing people to think about it like an outfit. You take off the one garment, put off. You put on the other garment. In my head, I think of Mr. Rogers with the sweaters, but I don't know if it's a good analogy. It's probably better to have like a really muddy, filthy outfit, a work outfit you take off and you put on this new garment. And then when we read in verse 14, we put on love. So this outer love, which binds everything together, it completes it. It it brings the whole thing together. It's kind of like, you know, when you have that outfit and it just doesn't seem quite perfect. It's missing something. Maybe it's shoes, maybe it's a scarf, maybe it's a... Uh, a hat, and then you find it, and you're like, voila. I have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? But I live with women, so I've heard this happens, okay? So even this morning, I was talking to Presley, and, and she was talking about her boots and how awesome they were. I'm like, does that complete your ensemble? She's like, yes. Love is this way in a marriage. Love completes it. Love allows all the other things to work together, to be unified. And not just any love, And certainly not an earthly love like the world understands love. But the word here, many of you know, is agape love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that puts your needs before my needs. It's the love that Jesus Christ had when he laid down his life on the cross. That's the kind of love that is critical, that completes the ensemble, that, that makes the marriage work. We're talking about two imperfect people living in covenant together. We better have Christ-like love. If we don't have Christ-like love, we're not going to be able to live with that imperfect person. I want you to see a beautiful promise in verse 14 and 15. So if we put into practice this agape love, look at the end of verse 14. It says, this love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You want that for your marriage? You want that peace in your marriage, in your home? Some days I just want peace in the home, right? <laughs> Enough of the bickering and the, and, the, and the picking, I don't like the way you're looking at me and all this stuff, right? We want peace. And to be honest, that's a struggle I have. I desire peace sometimes to too high of a degree. It's become an idol. I just want peace and quiet. And so when I don't get peace and quiet, guess what? I start to get angry. But I want peace. Do you want peace? The text says if we take off these harmful things, this covetousness, this this evil desire, and instead we live this way with self-sacrificing Christian love, we'll find peace. 
when we repent of marriage idolatry and all those demands that we have, you know, and we start to say, instead of that, I'm going to put aside my demands. I'm going to recognize you as a real person, who you are, and I'm going to love you for who you are. That's where the freedom begins. It's how wives, in verse 18, you can actually start to understand, okay, maybe I can submit to my husband. If God does a work in me, if God changes me from the inside out, yeah, maybe I could. Maybe I could submit. Or a husband. It shows how we could actually obey this verse and love our wife and be tender and kind to our wife, even when they do those things that frustrate you. N.T. Wright said this. It's an awesome quote given our, our scripture here this morning. And he's talking about husbands. He says this. In, particularly, in particular, he must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her, his wife, being the person she is, to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. It is when husbands and wives understand these guidelines and live by them that they are truly free, free to mature and develop within the creative context of mutual love and respect. Don't you hear many people today criticize Christian marriage and say, you know, it's so constrictive, it's so stifling, it's even oppressive. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we dismantle the worldly version of marriage, when we stop living for our happiness, we start serving somebody in a, with agape love, well, that brings freedom. It's the earthly version of marriage. It's the worldly version of marriage that is so much less than God intended it to be. People out there don't understand this. Maybe they'll see it in our marriages. Marriage is designed to portray and reenact the relationship between Christ and the church. That's what that whole video was about, right? This is about that. One of the ways we do that, verse 13, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. So perhaps for someone in here today, I don't know, it's starting to make sense why your marriage has been such a struggle. Because if marriage is about reenacting the gospel and the forgiveness of Jesus, you've never embraced the forgiveness of Jesus. You've never come to a point in your life where you have uh, believed in Christ alone for your salvation. Yeah, you know the stories of Jesus. But you've never bowed your knee. You've never submitted to Jesus Christ. And so that gospel is not real in your heart. How are you going to reenact it in your marriage? It cannot happen. So my prayer for you today, if anyone's like that, my prayer for you today is that this beautiful picture of marriage would serve as an illustration for you. That as you think about marriage, you might be able to see the love of Christ. Because you know what it's like. If you're married, you know what it's like to love someone who is imperfect. You know what it's like to be kind to somebody who is being very unkind to you. You know what it's like when someone hurts you and so in those moments, I want you to think, I want you to picture Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, looking at his murderers with love in his eyes, saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. A Jesus who loved you when you couldn't have cared less about him. A Jesus who can forgive you though you've stiff-armed him your whole life. See, we get how difficult it is to love unloving people. Jesus did it. As Harry said earlier, Jesus is perfect. We are imperfect, but Jesus is perfect. And that's why marriage is portraying the love of Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. I mean, this is what we get to do as married people. We get to try to 
reenact the gospel in every little stress and every little squabble and every frustration, here's an opportunity to reenact the gospel. Now, if you're like me, you don't always do such a good job and you don't always think so theologically, you know. This is my opportunity to reenact the gospel when the trash bag is ripping open and spaghetti's falling out of it, you know. But it is, it's a chance to be forgiving, to be tender, to be gentle, to remember, man, God loved me, Jesus loved me, and I was spitting in his face. And so you can start to see how marriage is not merely about my happiness, it's about so much more than that. But last thing for you to think about, think about this. Who is happier than the bride of Christ? Who is happier than those that have been transformed by Christ's love and forgiveness, who are children of God? You and I, who've experienced the love of Jesus Christ, what a, what a, what a joy there is in being the bride of Christ. And who is happier than Jesus the bridegroom? Who is happier than Jesus, who the Bible says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross? So in a way, you could say that marriage is about our happiness, but our holy happiness.